0: I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, are those college rankings that come out every year, are they actually helpful?
1: People will say, and U.S. News will say, well, what about consumer reports to choose a toaster or, or a refrigerator? I would argue that college is not like a toaster or refrigerator. Then
0: there are more than 7 billion people on the planet. Can we handle 3 billion more?
2: Well, human ingenuity is an incredibly powerful force. Um, The central argument in my book is whether it's powerful enough and whether we can, if you like, outwit
3: nature.
0: Plus, we try to understand what goes into developing a prescription drug and its hefty price tag.
3: The industry as a whole over the last few decades has found it harder and harder to discover new drugs, particularly drugs that are transformational or make a real difference, a radical difference in people's lives.
0: That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There were lots of big headlines in 1983. Unemployment was the highest it had been in 40 years. President Ronald Reagan proposed a defense system that became known as Star Wars. Motorola introduced the very first cell phone. And there was an article published that year that probably seemed like small potatoes at the time, but that would go on to have tremendous impact. The article was in one of the big news weeklies back in the days when Time, Newsweek, and U.S. News and World Report were the big three. And it tried to take on what seemed like an impossible task, determining which of the thousands of colleges in the U.S. were the best. Even in those early days, according to Scott Jassick, who's the CEO and editor of Inside Higher Ed, it was clear that the U.S. News
1: and World Report rankings were going to be big. Look, Americans love rankings. People gravitate toward them. It doesn't mean that it's the best college, but people want to boast about their alma mater, their home state institution. And there are real consumer needs for more information about higher education. What many in higher education argue,
0: as do some high school counselors, is that the impact of the US News rankings have been far too big. They've changed how college presidents and governors, parents, students, how they all make decisions. The rankings, some say, might seem innocuous or peripheral, but they're remaking the system and not in a good way. The man behind the rankings tends to stay out of the spotlight. More than 40 years ago, Robert Morse took a job at the magazine US News and World Report. When he started, he could not have imagined that a small project in the 1980s The ranking of colleges, which was just one of the many articles in the magazine, would become so wildly popular, it would outlast the magazine itself, which stopped putting out its weekly paper product in 2011.
4: None of the people involved at the beginning, and I took over the rankings in 1987, none of us predicted or even thought at any level that rankings would evolve to be what they are today we weren't even thinking about it at all. We were just thinking about producing a product to fill 20 or
0: 25 pages in in a weekly news magazine. Morse sounds grandfatherly, and indeed, he's a grandfather. He's also an ex-Treasury employee who loves statistics. And he has shepherded statistics about the college rankings for about 30 years now, meaning that many in higher education consider him a singularly powerful man. But Scott Jacek, the editor of Inside Higher Ed, told me that over time, resistance to the rankings has grown.
1: I think it has built up. But almost as long as I can remember writing about U.S. news, I can remember talking to people saying, you realize they're really silly and they have reason for saying so. Mm -hmm. This is not a way to pick a college even, you know, and people will say, and U.S. news will say, well, what about consumer reports to choose a toaster or, mm-hmm. you know, or, or a refrigerator? Right. I would argue that college is not like a toaster or refrigerator. (laughs) Now, in a toaster or refrigerator, you do have cost issues. But basically, for what you're willing to spend, there is a best toaster or a best fridge. Mm -hmm. I think college is much more complicated. I think that colleges that are routinely on the top of US News would be terrible institutions for many students. Likewise, I think there are colleges that are way down in the U.S. News list that may be a perfect place Mm -hmm. for many students. Mm -hmm. So I I just flat out think it doesn't make sense.
0: Um, How has U.S. News and World Report changed the approach of parents and students to colleges?
1: Well, first of all, U.S. News now has lots of imitators. So there are lots of rankings. They have spawned an industry. Many parents care about the rankings. Many trustees care about the rankings. A parent might say, well, I'll pay for a top college, not a bottom college, or whatever. Mm. Um, So many students look at them. Particular groups of students value them more than others. So for instance, international students who are a very important market for American higher education and may make up 10% of undergraduates at many institutions they really care about rankings, and their parents really care about mm-hmm. rankings. Mm-hmm. Likewise, I don't think the people who are choosing between Harvard, Yale, and Stanford care much at all. Okay. I think they the rankings tend to have more influence on the – nearly top colleges. So mm. there's been research that we've written about that there's a big boost to be 49 as opposed to 51. But if you look at the top 10, which is largely the same every year with modest changes, I don't think it makes a difference as ha- if Harvard is one or two or three.
0: Back in 2012, a small prestigious liberal arts college in California, Claremont McKenna, was found to be inflating the SAT averages that they sent to US News. At the time, U.S. News had named Claremont McKenna the ninth best liberal arts college in America, which the school was very proud of. They were sitting up in rarefied air. So why were they doctoring their numbers?
1: Not just to have better rankings, but they wanted their top officials to feel that they were getting the elites while the admissions people wanted to admit more disadvantaged students, more minority students who didn't have the top SAT scores. Now, I'm not defending the fact that they lied to U.S. News and submitted false data, but what you see there is a twisting of priorities. Hmm. Admissions people who wanted to focus on broadening the pool of students felt pressure to instead focus on who has the highest SAT scores.
0: SAT scores, as it happens, correlate heavily with how much money your family has. According to SAT data released a few years ago, kids from families that earn more than $200,000 a year score, on average, hundreds of points higher than students whose families earn between $20,000 and $40,000 a year. In 2017, the website Politico published an article that came out swinging against US News college rankings. It argued that the rankings privilege rich schools accepting rich kids and that institutions trying to bridge the educational divide in this country are punished. Some of the most powerful aspects of the article were quotes from college leaders. For example, here's what F. King Alexander, the president of Louisiana State University, said. Quote, I think U.S. News has done more damage to the higher education marketplace than any single enterprise that's out there. Carol Christ, the chancellor of the University of California, Berkeley, noted that the extent to which U.S. News motivates schools to pick wealthier students is, quote, mind boggling. Robert Morse, who runs the U.S. News College rankings, says that those kinds of accusations are just flat out wrong. And
4: I I think blaming U.S. News because they can't get enough resources from their state government to have all the programs that they need to meet the needs of the state is not a U.S. News fault. It's Mm -hmm. the state government or or the state government doesn't think the state taxpayers would pay for more. Mm -hmm. So I I think there's a lot going on to blame U.S. News for higher education's ills. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think higher education
0: needs to, to look inward at itself. Moore says U.S. News is measuring the marketplace, not making the marketplace. And after all, if you are a parent forking over a ton of money for your kid's college education, wouldn't you wanna know whether 50% of students ultimately graduate from a given school versus say 80%? Wouldn't you wanna know which colleges provide their faculty with needed resources? And Moore says that US News makes sure that schools taking students with Pell Grants, so needy students, that those schools do not suffer just because poorer students are less likely to graduate than richer students. In fact, Moore says, if those schools have a better graduation rate for students with Pell-Grants than would be statistically expected, they are rewarded. Plus, he says, the rankings are one tool in a toolbox. Don't rely on them to make all your decisions about college. Scott Jacek, who's the editor of Inside Higher Ed, couldn't agree more.
1: What I encourage high school students to do is in wherever, near wherever they live, go visit a bunch of colleges. You may not want to go there, but visit a liberal arts college and a community college and a big state university and a smaller state university and think about whether there's a type of college that works for them. Then think about finances and what they can afford, factoring in that many colleges are exceptionally generous with aid. Then factor in academics and seek help from their college counselors on the kinds of places they can look at and the kinds of places that may have good programs for uh, their academic interests at the same time remembering that the academic interests of many 17-year-olds are long gone by the time they're 19. So I mm-hmm. am always a little wary about going mm-hmm. too narrow. Mm-hmm. But then then, then you sort of find out, am I looking at big public universities that are strong in math and science? Or am I looking for small liberal arts colleges strong in the humanities? Um, or I really care about study abroad. So I'm looking at places with strong study abroad. But I sort of do a multi suggest a multi-step thing where you think about different issues visit places online and hopefully in person talk to people it sounds really scary because there's so many colleges mm-hmm. but you can keep winnowing down your pool so that you're looking at a reasonable number
0: Jessic says that US News has stepped into a vacuum and it's not a vacuum that has to be there
1: I actually think parents should be demanding more college counselors in high schools, not better rankings. Um, People do need help, but I think they need individualized help. And one of the greatest inequities right now in American education is if you look at the ratio of college counselors to students, it's so much uh, tilted toward Mm -hmm. those who already have advantages.
0: And don't think that the folks at U.S. News haven't noticed those missing ranks of high school counselors.
1: I think the rankings have
4: filled a void, which has evolved over time about as public school systems in, in many states have, you know, reduced high school counseling. That mm-hmm. many prospective parents and the students themselves are, have to do it yourself. You right. know, the, the counselor load is so high that people have to figure this out for themselves. And, and, and the rankings and, and the data that we publish has, has been a way for people to do that, which didn't exist.
0: But even Morse, who has devoted the past three decades to ranking colleges and crunching data, acknowledges a clear truth. Where you go to school is a pretty small part of the overall equation. He, for example, went to the University of Cincinnati.
4: But it was like everything in life, it's hard work and dedication and being able to think and coming up with ideas and being an, an entrepreneur. You know, like a, like you could say, I'm like a ranking entrepreneur, somebody <laughs> who's, who's, who's helped create, you know, how to use data. So, you know, the ranking isn't going to help you rise up the corporate ladder. The ranking isn't going to make you a law partner. The ranking isn't going to make you uh, – a surgeon. You're not going to make you a Nobel Prize winner. You you have to do all those things on on your own. Mm-hmm. But and and it's true that I didn't go to top ranked schools. But but I've worked hard and I've I've come up with ideas and I work for a company that's invested in, in these ideas mm-hmm. or gotten their gotten their resources and and thought they were worth publishing. And and in some ways, you know, the rest is history.
0: We've got lots more about the U.S. News College Rankings on our website. There you will find a link to a profile of Robert Morse, as well as links to the Politico article that we mentioned criticizing the rankings, and more about the connection between family income and a student's college performance. That's all at innovationhub.org. In the late 1970s, a man from China visited Europe. While he was there, he stumbled on two books that didn't just change his life, they changed his country. And you could argue they changed the world. The books made an argument that was gaining currency in the U.S. and in Europe in the 1970s that the world's population, which was over 4 billion, was a ticking time bomb. And the solution was to curtail consumption and reproduction, to get closer to the land, to stop straining the earth. There were experts making a different sort of argument, that we could use technology to feed billions more people, that we could come up with less wasteful ways to manufacture the products we love, that inventiveness would provide a solution. But the Chinese official, Song Jen, embraced the ticking time bomb argument, and when he went back to China, he advocated something that has shaped the world's most populous nation, a one-child policy. That argument over whether we should save the world by restricting consumption or just by inventing our way out of messes, that had been raging for years when Song Jen stumbled across it. And it's still going on. Charles Mann writes about the American scientists who faced off against each other in the battle between restriction and inventiveness. And he looks at what we've learned about who was right all these decades later. Charles Mann is the author of the new book, The Wizard and the Prophet, Two Remarkable Scientists and Their Dueling Visions to Shape Tomorrow's World. Charles, welcome.
2: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So now that there are more than 7 billion, we were talking, you know, I was talking about all this sort of worrying when when the population was at 4 plus billion. Now that we're at 7 plus billion, it's incredible to kind of look back and realize there was such concern about population growth. Why was there that kind of concern in the 60s and in the 70s about this ticking time bomb of population?
2: Well, there are two reasons. First, uh, the population was increasing incredibly quickly at that time. Okay. Uh, Much faster than now. Okay. Um, It had uh, almost tripled in the lifetime of Song Jen and the people who were talking then, whereas somebody um, from now— It's about seven billion. If he were doing this now and in 2050 it's about ten billion, that's an increase of about twenty-five percent. Okay. So if you like the slope of the curve was much, much steeper. Okay. And nobody had ever seen anything like that before. And the second reason was that it's indisputable that this incredible outpouring of people was radically straining the capacities of many, many countries um, in poor areas, especially such as India and China. Mm -hmm. And so there was a real problem. The question was whether the population was the cause of the problem or merely something that was related to
0: it. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like the fact that we have been able to scale up from 4 billion people in the 70s to 7 billion people now, does that make you, does that make um, environmentalists feel any better about like, our ability to handle billions more people, to feed billions more people?
2: Well, that's the question, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. And we don't have the rates of famine, by the way, that we did, for example, in I think the 1980s. So you might think like maybe now even more people are hungry than they ever were. But that is not true. We are not in a time of record famine.
2: No, it's in fact, it's quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. In 1970, or thereabouts, you know, when I was in high school, something like a third of the world was malnourished. Okay. And now it's something like 10%, even though the population has more than doubled in those intervening decades. And so today, you have less chance of being born into a family that's experiencing undernourishment than at any time in recorded history. So in that way, it's quite good. On the other hand, 8%, 10% 8%, 10% of a big number, which is 7 billion is a big number, It's still a big number. And there's roughly 800 million people, hungry people in the world. That's a lot.
0: Right, right. What, what does it say to you, though, about human ingenuity that we've been able to feed billions more mouths in the last 40 years?
2: Well, human ingenuity is an incredibly powerful force. Um, the central argument in my book is whether it's powerful enough. Uh-huh. And whether we can, if you like, outwit nature, whether we can keep going in the way we've been going. And the argument in my book is between people who say human ingenuity is an unstoppable force and between people who say, look, there are these natural cycles, these natural processes, and we transgress them at our peril. And what we've been able to do is temporarily buy ourselves some
0: room. So you uh, sort of got the idea for this book um, in some ways after you realized that when your daughter grew up, there would be 10 billion people on the planet. Um, Right.
2: When she was my age, there'd be about 10 billion people. Right.
0: Does that number still still scare you in the way that it did this idea of like, wow, 10 billion?
2: It does seem like a lot of people, doesn't it?
0: It does. But I can't put my arms around 7 billion. So I don't you know, it's hard to like these are just numbers. Right. Right.
2: They're, but they're very large numbers. They and are. It Really, it struck me as literally on the day she was born, you know, they threw me out of the hospital, which is, you know, what they do to dads <laughs> so that you know, the people who actually did something, the moms and the children can get to uh, get some sleep. And I was standing there in the parking lot and it suddenly occurred to me, you know. When she's my age, it's going to be 10 billion people. How's that going to work? Mm -hmm. And the reason I think that the question is so pressing now is that accompanying this incredible rise in numbers has also been an incredible rise in global affluence. I mean, the difference between Mexico when I first saw it in 1981 and now is incredible. The Mm -hmm. difference between China when I first saw it in 1990 and now is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Same thing for India which when I first saw it in the 80s. Any, if you've been traveling anywhere in the developing world, the change that you've seen in people's lives is just absolutely extraordinary. Right. So not only are there going to be almost 10 billion people, but they're going to, a huge number of them are going to be affluent middle-class people like myself. And they're going to want all the things I want. Mm-hmm. They're going to want air conditioning. They're want a car. They're going to want to have nice clothes. They want occasional treats. At one point, I was going to call the book Toblerone for 10 billion. <laughs> but my editor vetoed that for some reason. <laughs>
0: Um, So let's talk about these two competing visions that you write about in the book. Um, I I mentioned them in the beginning. There's this idea of, look, we're straining the earth. Let's pull back on buying stuff, on having kids. And then uh, there's the other side of like, no, science is going to save us. We can have the things we want. Uh, We just have to figure out kind of ingenious ways of making it happen. I think for many of us, that's not a binary choice. So we do both of those things. So for me, there'll be times when I think, I really shouldn't buy that shirt. I I don't need one more shirt. There will be other times, though, when I think I need disposable forks for a party. I I, I actually recently saw uh, forks on Amazon and thought, great, these are compostable. I will buy these forks. You write about these two men who personified these two different approaches. Do do you want to talk about these guys?
2: Sure. Um, After my daughter was born and I had this realization um, I mean, I'd known this before, but it somehow it hit me really hard. Maybe I had more skin in the game. I'm a science writer, and I would talk to scientists, and if we hit it off, I would have a cup of coffee with them afterwards. And I would say, you know, my daughter's just been born, and I would tell them what I had thought. And I'd say, what are we going to do? How are we going to provide enough food for everybody? How are we going to provide enough water, energy? You know, what are we going to do about climate change? And I realized after a while that there are these two broad categories of answers. You know, there are two broad approaches And these two names kept coming up when people would discuss them. And one was Norman Borlaug. And he's the principal figure behind the Green Revolution, which is the combination of high-yielding crops, um, especially bread, high-intensity fertilizer and irrigation that doubled or even tripled um, grain yields across the world and forestalled a tremendous amount of famine. And then he's become the symbol, if you like, or the emblem of the idea that science and technology, properly applied, can let you produce your way out of Mm -hmm. these things out of these dilemmas. You can We can put on our thinking caps, make more, and everybody can win. And the other guy is a guy named William Vogt. And he, more than anybody else, is the progenitor of the environmental movement, this enormously powerful realization that the world has limits, this belief that the world has these natural processes, you can't go beyond them, otherwise bad things happen. And he wrote the first modern, we're all going to hell book, if you know what I mean. And all the books you might have read, The Population Bomb, right. um, Al Gore's book, uh, Earth in mm-hmm. the Balance, Limits to Growth, all these classics, Silent Spring, all stem from his book. Mm. And he said, look, again, the world has a caring capacity, as he called it. There's only so much we can do. And if we don't stay within that limit, everybody's going to lose. And I realize these two approaches are kind of the opposite with each other. And Borlaug and Vogt. Got into a fight in the 1940s when they met. Um, Vote actually tried to get Borlaug shut down, kind of half-heartedly, and they never spoke ever again. And that's pretty much where the dialogue has been. And this fight has been going on underneath. For decades
0: mm-hmm let's talk about uh, the Borlaug approach first this sort of maybe science can help us increase the carrying capacity right? right that it's not finite that we can don't worry we can we can come up with a solution even if we increase the load or people want more stuff or whatever what made Borlaug believe that like there was sort of inventiveness was the answer and we didn't need to uh, restrict people
2: I think um, it was his own life. I mean, he uh, more or less accidentally backed into a a career in science and um, graduated with a degree in plant pathology at the height of the depression and ended up, through a series of coincidences, working in Mexico in the 1940s, when Mexico was desperately poor. It was poor in a way that's really hard for us to imagine now. And something like two out of three people in the country at some point didn't get enough to eat during the year. Um, The national grain of Mexico is corn, as most people know, to make tortillas and tamales and so forth. And the national harvest of corn was going down. Hmm. The nation harvested a third less corn in 1940 than it did in 1920, even though more and more acres were planted. So the situation was really, really dire. And uh, by years and years of incredibly hard work, he developed these high-yielding grains that radically transformed the situation in Mexico and in many other uh, countries. Hmm. And so with his own eyes, he saw the power of science and technology to make a huge difference. And this example was so extraordinary that people in many, many unrelated fields have taken it to heart. And that's how he's become the emblem of this mm-hmm. idea.
0: And, and you note that big foundations put their money behind him. They've sort of willingly really liked this approach of invention, whereas vote, at least in some ways, and by some people was sort of branded like a tree hugger and like did not get the kind of financial support um, that Borlaug did.
2: No. Uh, And part of it was because uh, he was explicitly um, critical of capitalism. I mean, he was critical of practically everything. Um, So this was just sort of folded into the mix. And A lot of the foundations were founded by people who had done very, very well in the capitalist uh, system. And so consequently, his message was unwelcome. And his message really was we're using too much. We're consuming too much. We're placing too much uh, weight on the uh, ecosystems of the earth. And the result will be deforestation, erosion, pollution, Mm -hmm. nitrogen um, problems, you know, the the panoply of um, environmental issues that we are familiar with today. And uh, his argument was we just got to stop doing things the way we are and we have to change it into something quite different, something that's much easier on the earth. And this was then and now an unwelcome message to people who are doing very well out of the current system.
0: But wouldn't you say that the the vote approach, the kind of don't consume as much approach, was also about sort of changing our communities in a fundamental way? It wasn't just – about having an energy star on refrigerators.
2: Yes, it was about keeping a vital countryside, I think, would be a nice way of putting it. Uh, One of the things that came along with the Green Revolution was industrial agriculture, and it fit neatly into that. And essentially, it regards the land as a kind of petri dish that you pour chemicals into, you plant the seeds in, and then you get this um, huge crop of nearly identical um, plants that you harvest with giant machines. And so it fed a huge exodus from the countryside into the cities and you get this radically depopulated countryside. And this has occurred not just in the United States where, you know, the farm population went from the number of people involved in farms was something like a quarter of the nation in the 1930s to today where it's um, on the order of 2%. And this happened in one way or another, all over the world and fed into these huge populations in the uh, in the cities. And the Votians, although I don't actually use that word very much in the book because it sounds too much like a Star Trek you know ca- character, <laughs> you, know, you know, Captain, the Votian ambassador, so forth. So we'll say the prophets. OK. The prophets decried this and said, look, you know they're like Jefferson. They say a a countryside that is, you know, thriving and populous and uh, has these uh, farm communities, that's a good way to live. That's a way, uh, you know, foundation of democracy and, and so forth. And so in a funny way, the prophets are connected to a very, very old strain in American life. And You know, almost anybody who grows up American has some sympathy with this because it's been imbued in us from our education.
0: I should say here that you look at votes followers, um, these folks who basically saw doom if we put too much pressure on the earth as prophets, like people who are predicting the future. Um, And you look at Borlaug's followers or you call Borlaug's followers who the folks who thought invention will help us sort of wriggle out of our sticky situations. Uh, Those people are wizards. I wonder if you think like the data is in yet on who was right or like do we have enough evidence in yet?
2: Unfortunately, we have evidence that both are right. Um, and it depends on the kind of lenses that you look at. If you're concerned about productivity, there's no question that the wizards, that Borlaug um, is is right. We can obviously produce vastly more than was thought possible in the 1960s, but the lesson that vote drew is that we might be able to produce more, but it will be accompanied by severe ecological damage. And that mm. has also occurred. Mm. Um, for example, about you know a key part of the green revolution is fertilizer, about 40% right. of That's that right. fertilizer. There's been an enormous increase in the um, amount of fertilizer that's been um, used around the world, about 40% of that fertilizer was not absorbed by plants, and it's either gone up into the air, in the high air, where it interferes with the um, ozone layer, or down below, where it creates nitrous oxides and pollution, or even worse, into streams, where it gets washed from the land, the streams go into the ocean, create fertilizer in the ocean is still fertilizer, it creates these enormous blooms of um, algae and other um, aquatic plants, they die They fall to the um, bottom of the ocean, microorganisms eat them up, and they are in such a frenzy with this new food supply that they suck all the oxygen out of the water and they create these vast dead zones. There's one Mm -hmm. in the Gulf of Mexico, it's about 7,000 square miles. There's one in the Bay of Bengal um, that was measured last year, it's about uh, 21,000 square miles. Mm -hmm. There are these huge areas where no life can survive. And so a prophet would look at this and say, look what's happened here. Agriculture is literally killing the oceans. So... Which, which of these do you believe? Mm-hmm. Do you believe the mm-hmm. good side? You know, yay, more food or bad side? Look at all the erosion, mm-hmm. de- um, deforestation, salinization, the nitrogen dead zones. They're, they're both accurate.
0: Charles Mann is the author of the new book, The Wizard and the Prophet, Two Remarkable Scientists and Their Dueling Visions to Shape Tomorrow's World. Charles, thank you so much.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure talking with you.
0: have articles on the effects of fertilizer on the ocean that man mentioned, which is creating dead zones, that's at our website, innovationhub.org. A few years ago, you may remember this, an extremely young drug company CEO, he was about 30 at the time, decided to raise the cost of one of the drugs that he distributed from $13.50 a pill to $750 a pill. So, $13 one day, $750 the next. And it scared and angered a lot of people. The drug helps treat infections from parasites. And Martin Shkreli, who was young, rich, and pretty tactless, became for a moment a household name. In a seemingly unrelated development, though Shkreli did not think it was unrelated, he also landed in jail.
4: Martin Shkreli was released on bail Thursday afternoon after being arrested and charged with
0: fraud. This morning, 32-year-old ex-pharmaceutical CEO Martin Shkreli giving his first interview since being charged. In March, Shkreli was sentenced to seven years in prison. But the scandal has highlighted a couple of big questions. First, how do drug companies decide how to price drugs? And second, and perhaps even more importantly, if you run a drug company, what afflictions are worth your time and money? Now, you'd hope that decisions were being made based on the most serious issues that humanity faces. But that's not exactly how it works.
5: They are looking for a financial return. So they're looking for areas where the science gives them a good shot. And they're looking for areas where they're going to be able to make a good return when they do it.
0: Matt Herper is a reporter for Forbes covering science and medicine, and he says that not only is a slog towards a new drug long and the failure rate high, but it can cost anywhere from several million dollars to several billion dollars to develop the drug. And only about 10 percent of drugs in human trials actually pan out, which explains part of the cost.
5: We've seen a revolution in cancer drugs which has coincided with a revolution in cancer drug pricing. I remember when Genentech, this was maybe 10 years ago, Genentech was getting in hot water because their cancer treatment of astin was going to cost more than $50,000 for some people. Now it's routine for cancer drugs to cost $150,000, $200,000 per year.
0: Now, you might think that as we get better and more efficient at creating pharmaceuticals, they'd become more affordable. In tech, there is something called Moore's Law, which says that the processing power of computers essentially doubles every two years. That means that over time, we can get faster computers and we can get them cheaper. Matt Herper says when it comes to the drugs you're prescribed, it doesn't quite work that way. In
5: the pharma industry, we have this thing that's called Eroom's Law. E room is more spelled backwards. It's an exponential <laughs> increase. That's the general trajectory. It seems to be getting better. It seems to not be exponential.
0: So, how do we deal with these super high prices? Many countries negotiate the prices down for everybody in the healthcare system. And there's some negotiating that goes on in the US, but we have much higher prices than almost every other industrialized country. Though, negotiation is not our only cost-reducing strategy.
5: Right now, the main mechanism we're using for controlling drug prices is public shaming. You'd think we need something better than that. It's surprisingly Mm -hmm. effective when we do use it. Like a couple reporters write a story saying, well, they raised the price by this much. And a lot of companies have said, "Okay, well, we're going to not do that for a while.
0: But there's another element to add to this equation of whether companies prioritize cancer over Alzheimer's or insomnia over depression. According to author Barry Wirth, we should have a little sympathy for pharmaceutical companies.
3: It's very, very hard to discover new drugs, harder all the time, even though there's you know there's a cornucopia of new discoveries that make new drugs um, appear extremely promising. But the industry as a whole, over the last few decades, has found it harder and harder to discover new drugs, particularly drugs that are transformational or make a real difference, a radical difference
0: in people's lives. Wirth is the author of The Antidote, Inside the World of New Pharma, and he says, look, the science is tough and investors are unforgiving.
3: All of the companies, of course, are looking for uh, two things, return on their investment and money on Wall Street. And Wall Street, of course, is extremely myopic. So this this chase after money is um, bolstered by promises that the companies make about what they're to discover and when. But it, it, there's nothing quite like the drug industry in terms of pricing. So Uh, The person, or I should say the agency, that pays the cost of a pharmaceutical product is most Mm -hmm. likely going to be an insurance company or a government. Right. Um, But the user, the end user, is an individual.
0: Right. And the buyer is like a doctor or a hospital. Like it's all different. Yeah.
3: Exactly. So unlike any other product, if you manufacture a mattress or a car or or a stereo component, you tend to be selling your product to the person who's buying it. Right. But in pharmaceuticals, you're not, and that distorts everything in terms mm-hmm. of a business model. But there are, of course, cases like the Shkreli case that you um, described, which mm-hmm. are purely about gouging. But, mm-hmm. but if you're looking at companies that are actually dedicated to our research and development for discovering innovative new drugs that will change people's lives, um, that's just – paying for all the uncertainties and all the failure that goes along with a very difficult scientific project.
5: Now, I, the, the pharmaceutical industry likes to use this as a as if it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly – it it probably shouldn't be. It's fair to note that dr- a lot of drugs are a lot less expensive in other countries. Mm-hmm. They could be underpriced there, but they could also be overpriced here right. or both. Right, right. Ken Fraser at Merck um, recently said to me, he's the CEO there. He said that investors don't have compassion, and it's true. And you mm-hmm. have to keep investors somewhat happy.
0: Right, the, the people who buy your stock, right? Who buy people shares? People who buy Merck your stock. Whatever. Yeah, yeah.
5: Or if you're a private company, the people who own the company. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also true that if you do a whole bunch of R and D in cars, mm-hmm. and you come back and you show me a Ford Pinto,
0: mm-hmm.
5: and you say, "Well, you should pay." top dollar for this Ford Pinto because I spent a lot on R&D, you're going to look at me like I'm crazy. Like the the drugs have to be worth it. And we do get to make a decision at some point. Uh,
0: Barry, let me go back to a a question I uh, hinted at before, which is this idea of what drugs are chosen to develop. And if there is a lot of pressure from investors, um, you know, to come up with something, that works and that's lucrative. I just wonder um, how much pressure is there to just come up with like a slightly better sleep aid? Because, you know, we know how to make sleep aids or like a slightly better erectile dysfunction pill. Now, maybe these are not the things that are going to advance society that much, but maybe you can make money on them in the short term.
3: Well, that's certainly been the case. And that's really been the model for Big Pharma for decades, which is. Um well, I'll give you an example. So Lipitor, which was the fifth yeah. statin to be approved by the FDA, became the biggest selling drug of all time. And that works only so much. And, and you know, I think it's important to say that, that really for the first time in the history of the American pharmaceutical industry, which was born during um, the 20s and 30s and really came of age in the 40s and 50s, there is now pushback on pricing. Up until now, there's been in the United States... Very little pushback. Um, And for exactly the reason that I described earlier, the insurers and the government were willing to pay the prices that the companies were charging. I should also say that because we have such high prices here and because the pharmaceutical lobby is so powerful and and has arranged it so that the government doesn't negotiate on price, we end up subsidizing the rest of the world. So our high prices make it possible for the British, for the Irish, for instance, with their national health insurance programs Mm -hmm. to negotiate lower prices. Mm -hmm. But talking about prices in the States... Um, there hasn't been any pushback until now, and you see the difficulty with w- within the political debate in Washington. Is people con- mm-hmm. continue to complain about high prices, but nobody seems to be able to do anything about them.
0: And in fact, I remember during the election, you heard from both Republicans and Democrats the drug prices were too high. Although I haven't seen legislation to that effect, but you know, well,
3: and you and you probably won't, in yeah. part because of the power of the lobby and in part because we value these products so highly. I mean. Well,
5: There's another reason we're not going to see legislation, which Mm -hmm. is that it's a really hard problem to fix. Uh, The legislations, that the the ideas that are being offered are things on the order of transparency. They're kind of formalizing the kind of shaming that really got Martin Shkreli in trouble. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of what got Martin in trouble was that Martin, unlike most pharmaceutical executives, when you put him up in front of Congress, he didn't shut up and take it like you're supposed to. He mugged and he insulted and he tweeted. I mean, Martin Martin came to my healthcare conference and was asked what he should do about the price of uh, what he what he would have done differently. He said, oh, I would have raised the price more. This is after things had hit the fan. Hmm.
0: You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Matt Herper, a reporter for Forbes and Barry Worth, author of the book The Antidote Inside the World of New Pharma. So, Matt, uh, Barry talked before about Lipitor. I wonder how much you think about or or worry about these kind of uh, me-too drugs. And I wonder if drug companies focus on them because, like I said, we know how to make sleep aids and cholesterol-lowering drugs.
5: Me-too drugs are one of the only things that do drive down cost. Um, The statins, even back then, the Lipitor, Crestor, did um, compete on cost and Lipitor and Crestor were a lot better than Zocor and Mevacor and Pravacol. So Mm -hmm. those incremental – because that gives – that's what these pharmacy benefit managers – then they're arguing two drugs against each other and people actually have to drop their price.
0: Do you think there is a role here for government? I mean, should every company think about this question of what do we develop in isolation? Or should there be some kind of uh, government or scientific body that says, look, we don't have cutting edge antibiotics. This is a serious problem. Maybe we should incentivize their creation.
5: The problem with the government is the government doesn't pay as much as greedy people. So when you when you just say, well, the government's going to set this as a goal, well, if I get a Lipitor, the value of that Lipitor, Lipitor at its peak was doing twelve billion dollars a year. Um, the the value of a drug over like that over the course of its life can be fifty, a hundred billion dollars. Hmm. You're lucky if if you offer a billion dollar prize for a new antibiotic. That's about the same as if you had an antibiotic that was generating 200 million a year. So it's hmm. very hard to get that kind of money uh, from the government. Hmm. And if you the government starts telling companies what to develop, investors don't want to put in money for that.
0: Barry, you've been covering the pharmaceutical industry for a long time. Give me a sense of like the trajectory that you've seen and that you know about. It are more important drugs coming out now are less just give me a sense of what what the trajectory is
3: well uh, so I started looking at the industry in 1989 I think okay and that was before the human genome was solved mm-hmm. uh, that revolution in our understanding of how diseases many many diseases progress um, has, has created a, um, a platform for many new drugs. Rare diseases, which is an area that was um, neglected for a long time and then pursued without much success for a long time, right. is, are now very hot because it's possible with the disease where there's one genetic mutation or a couple of genetic mutations to actually design drugs that will uh, re- reverse that genetic damage. Um, the best example, I think, is the one I'm most familiar with, which is Vertex Pharmaceutical and its work in cystic fibrosis. Hmm. So when I was a kid, I'm, I'm in my mid-60s now, people with cystic fibrosis barely made it into their teens. Hmm. Painful, excruciating disease. Parents watch their children uh, starve for air and eventually uh, die of lung disease and digestive disease. Um, Vertex has now... I think they're on the verge of getting their third approval for drugs that basically correct the work of damaged genes and are – now they're restoring life to people it is – fairly well accepted now that soon, if you're born with cystic fibrosis, you're likely to be able to live a full life, um, most of that um, sustained by these drugs. And that's been a a godsend for those people. And it's been, I think, a wonderful thing for the scientific community to be able to claim that as a kind of a victory. Hmm. The problem there is that there's 70,000 people worldwide who have that disease. And um, the, for those 70,000 people, it is the difference between life and death. Right, But right. that's quite a small number. Right. And if we're looking at broader public health issues like diabetes or, dis- also, or diseases – and that's the other thing, diseases of age. I mean, is this the most effective use of our capital and of our scientific resources to – Uh, you know, again, for those patients, absolutely. For society in general, I think um, we're reaching a reckoning where we're going to have to make some decisions about how we spend our our public health dollars. And that may not be the best place to put the money. Mm -hmm. And and drugs, pharmaceuticals may not be the best place to put the money either, by the way. Better health habits among the American population would probably um, improve a lot more people's lives than any number of new medicines.
0: Barry Wirth is author of the book, The Antidote, Inside the World of New Pharma. Matt Herper covers science and medicine for Forbes. Thanks so much to both of you.
3: Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much.
0: My conversation with Herper and Wirth originally aired in March of this year, In May, President Trump released a plan to lower drug prices, which relies on a series of small initiatives. So far, though, it hasn't had much of an effect. In fact, many pharmaceutical companies have seen their stock prices soar since the announcement, which means Wall Street probably doesn't see price cuts ahead. And if you happen to be wondering, what's the most popular prescription drug in the world right now? It's Humira, which treats psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis, among other things. Six years ago, Humera cost $19,000 a year. Now it's more than $38,000 a year. Not surprisingly, when experts looked at the cost of Humera in 2015, they found that the price in England had been negotiated to half of what it is here. And it was even cheaper in other countries like Switzerland and Spain. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show, Associate Producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filippino, Engineer Doug Sugertz, and Interns Chloe lemel and Simone Miliori. This week, we bid a fond farewell to our fantastic senior producer, Matt Purdy. He has been an amazing asset to the show for the past three years. We thank him so much, and we wish him well. And Matt loves to throw out Bulgarian catchphrases around the office, so I think it is only right that today we leave you with a Bulgarian sign-off.
3: Obrigada, Kira, e de estejivis de
0: rádio. PRI, Public Radio International.